guys, you're listening to Bento Podcast. We're a podcast series for and by millennials that talks about topics and issues surrounding our generation. And we're bringing you stories of millennials from all over the world and their journey. I'm your host, Ben, and let's get this episode started. What is up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Bento Podcast. And this is season four, episode 10, and this is Mind Over Matter. And today I have a very special guest. Someone that I've known for quite a long time at this point, and a very dear friend. Please welcome Dr. Emanuela Gatti. Welcome, Dr. Gatti. Welcome to Brenta Podcast. Good morning. Good morning, Brendan. Well, it's very nice to finally talk with you again, Doctor. It's almost a year, I think, ever since um, we last talked. So thank you very much, especially setting aside time on a Sunday. Oh, no problem. I'm actually very happy of this opportunity to talk about psychology. All right. I think you're doing a very great job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gatti. And uh, just for our listeners, a bit of a heads up. Um, Dr. Gatti was actually one of the first individuals that I've shared about Bento Podcast when I first made it last year. And uh, he was also the first one who encouraged me to kind of find a medium for me to express myself. So first of all, I'd like to say thank you, Dr. Gatti, for helping me throughout those times last year um, with Nathan as well. Uh, so yeah, I would really like to thank you beforehand. <laughs> I'm so happy you say so because um, uh, you know um, I, I had no idea that my words uh, had made any difference or had <laughs> made an impact. So yeah. it's nice to see afterwards that actually something uh, important as this uh, series of podcasts uh, is happening. Yes, yes, this is actually I would say the fruit of your words, Dr. Gatti. So <laughs> definitely, this is. <laughs> Something That's too that much, but it's the fruit of your work rather than my words. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you for, for recognizing that. Thank you very much. It's, it's, yes. it's really encouraging because it, 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 it really gives meaning, you know, to, to people who make my job, who do my thank job. You. Well, thank you for me as well, doctor. Uh, so, yes, Dr. Gadi, could you please maybe tell uh, our listeners a bit about yourself? Yes, I will be very brief because I saw all the topics we needed to uh, touch today and there are more important things that uh, speaking about myself. Yeah. So uh, I am a psychologist. I studied clinical psychology, but in fact, I prefer to define myself a counseling psychologist because my specialization after my school of socialization uh, was more in counseling. So the difference is that counseling psychologists tend to um, support healthier individual rather than clinical psychologist. However, nowadays, the difference, I would say, is quite blur, at least in the context where I operate. Um, before getting to psychology, I must say that, in fact, my first degree was in uh, communication. Right. And then I have a PhD in, uh, in uh, sociology of culture and communication. What really uh, the field rouge between these uh, different subjects was my interest for human beings. So I was always quite dissatisfied because um, in communication and in sociology, I was studying uh, human beings from too much a wider perspective respect to what I wanted. And uh, eventually I ended up studying psychology as a way to narrow my perspective on human beings. And uh, there I finally stopped and found my place. Right, right. So would you say that this would be your calling then, Dr. Gatti, from the beginning? I wouldn't say so, but call, I, I don't know. But 
definitely there was a disposition for that. I remember when I was in middle school, for example, I started to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk with my schoolmates of all ages, very often a little bit more grown up than I, and they were bringing me their problems and obviously I had no idea how to help them but just the fact of being there listening to them maybe saying a word every now and then helped me uh, a lot being recognized as a person you could talk with and then in, during high school you know teenagers years this thing got a bit lost but yeah there was this I, this this kind of disposition to speak with people to help right right I see and uh, speaking of you know bringing up problems and basically talking to other people about it. Um, I like to, you know, bring us to our first uh, topic, Dr. Gary, which is basically uh, mental health, especially among young people. And also one of the reasons why uh, I'm, I, I planned this episode is because a lot of my listeners are, are very passionate about mental health, but a lot of them also realize that since most of them, my listeners are are from a very conservative background, I would say. So one of the topics that I'd like to, to ask you, the first question is like, the topic of mental health itself is often brought up. And we know that because there's been, you know, a higher awareness of it. But we see that there's not been much change, especially in more conservative countries. So, you know, I'd like to have, I'd like to hear your thoughts about it, Dr. Gary, especially now that you are in China as well, a country that's, I would say, towards mental health is also still having a more conservative stance. So if you please could maybe share us a bit of your insights. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, this is not an easy question and yeah. there wouldn't be an easy answer because the reality of mental health are very diversified around the world. So it's difficult for me to give an all-encompassing answer. Uh, I can give you two examples that I know a bit better, okay? Italy and China. Now, Italy, you may think that is a reality where um, mental health is a quite established um, concept, but it's not. In fact, the faculty of psychology didn't exist until the late 70s. And it uh, probably, maybe I may be wrong, maybe the the beginning of the 80s. So it's only a 40 years old something. And because before this need for speaking to someone was actually covered by another figure, which was the priest. Right. And so, you know, we had a very uh, strong uh, church tradition in Italy. So you can see and I will I will go back on this point later on, probably because this is important. Um, You can see that in the past there were were traditional figures to whom you could speak with and and they, they, they would help you somehow. Now, that doesn't mean that they would help you with your mental health. Let's make it clear. But they would give answers when people had doubts. This responds more to a counseling need rather than to a mental health need. Mental health was a disaster. And I'm very proud to say that right in the region where I grew up in uh, Italy, there was, uh, was oper- the, the psychiatrist that changed psychiatry all over the world uh, operated. He was um, Franco Basaglia and he's a psychiatrist who 
really change the how mental health and how people with men, severe mental health issues have been treated. He was operating in the 60s, in the 70s, and uh, he pushed to the humanization of people with severe mental health issues. And he made such a revolution that it was later taken, absorbed by many Western countries. Now, let's move to the other, the other country that I want to speak about is China. I speak about this country because I'm living in China. I'm quite new here. I have been living in Shenzhen in front of Hong Kong uh, for two years and a half now. So I only know the reality here. So I can say that China is similar to, Ita to Italy. I think until the 70s, the early 70s, psychology was illegal. And then it uh, became legal and it entered the universities. And now you can find people who graduate in psychology, people who uh, attend psychotherapy schools. However, there is still a big stigma, both in Italy and in China, but in China more about what mental health means and about what going to a psychologist means. So the classic uh, answer you would say, if you speak to someone, you say, oh, maybe you need to go to a psychologist to see a psychologist. Oh, but I'm not crazy. Right. Now the word crazy doesn't mean really anything, right? Yeah. And uh, the psychologist, fortunately, uh, with psychologists, we don't only take care of people with severe um, schizophrenia or um, severe mental health issues, but also people with a huge uh, array of other mental health conditions, both severe or not severe. So a psychologist can really help uh, to support the mental health in a lot of conditions. And this is not understood. This is not understood yet. So I think there is this stigma all around um, the concept of psychology in many countries. And I unfortunately have to say that this kind of answer, exactly the same answer, you get it in Italy too. So right. it's not true that just because psychology is a more established institution, more widespread in Italy now, this summer we are discussing about having the psychology in every school, etc. cetera. Uh, it's not true that just because it's more established, there is not that stigma anymore. Just in certain countries, um, the majority of people would not understand what you're talking about when you talk about psychology. Right. And even this, this happens also with educated people. I mean, sometimes I say, oh, you know, I studied sociology, then I passed to psychology. Oh, psychology, but it's like sociology, right? It's the same, right? <laughs> there is really right. not a clear understanding of what we're talking about. And I must say one last thing that, Pop psychology is not doing us a favor in uh, spreading a good culture of psychology. If there is something that I have uh, to fight against on a daily basis is the ideas that people, including my clients, get out of pop psychology. So all what you read on the internet, on, human ma on women magazines, also men magazines, you know, all these extreme simplifications of much more articulated research projects. I see. So yeah. would you call, so it's not much towards the establishment of psychology itself. It's in your opinion, it's really down more towards the culture of the place then. Yes, I think, I think, uh, for example, in the United States, uh, there is a much, uh, you, you can, you can feel a, a much 
bigger openness to new ideas. Now, this makes the Americans vulnerable to all kind of stupid uh, scams, but also they make them open to, to new ideas that actually have a meaning. And for example, it's meaningful that um, before the Second World War, a lot of, and also after the Second World War, a lot of intellectuals moved from Germany, which was together with a few other countries, uh, basically the nest of European culture, they moved from Germany or Austria to the United States and there they thrived. Today, when we speak about um, psychoanalysis, for example, we tend to think of an American uh, psychologist, we tend to think of the United States or what we watch in the movies, but in the um, in fact, Freud was from Austria, you know, <laughs> he was yeah. speaking German. <laughs> yep. I see. So, in this sense, doctor, like uh, you, especially now that you've already have uh, many clients in, in uh, China and Shenzhen right now, uh, from your perspective as a counselor, do you feel that you know, these days there is a greater need for people to see psychologists or maybe it's always been the same, but people are just more aware. Like there's always been a need, but people are just not aware, but now they're just aware. What do you think, doctor? Okay, I think both both things are quite true. So I think there is more awareness and gradually uh, more acceptance of the idea that um, you are not alone as long as there is a psychologist. Why do I say that? Because as I said before, in the past, there were traditional institutions that could replace the psychologist, that could uh, do the work that today is done by the psychologist, at least right. partially. Mm. Now, with postmodernity, uh, these disappear. Like the traditional agencies do not... Um, cover that role anymore, do not have the same power in covering that role anymore, do not have the same recognition from the public. So people feel that this disgregation of the social um, or the society uh, led to more solitude. And meanwhile, the acceleration of life, of the rhythm of life led to more anxiety. So people are more lonely in a faster world. And this basically creates all the, all the problems that we see in our society. And it creates that um, epidemic of anxiety that we have uh, in, in all society, not just in the Western society, but also in the East. You can see it uh, easily also in China, for example. So I think that it's very, very important to understand that there, there, there has been the fall of traditional society and people feel more lonely and this lead people to look for strangers to speak to, strangers who are professional of talking and uh, being therapeutical and to whom people can uh, tell all their stories, all their problems and receive an appropriate answer. And that's why more and more people find it's okay to go to a psychologist. I see. At the same time, I think the pandemic created a bigger need for it nowadays. But before the pandemic, this need was already there. The pandemic just exacerbated it. Because the pandemic, what it did was exacerbating dynamics that were already there. Isolation, the fact that women have to work more than men, not more in the office perhaps, but more at home. So they have to work at home and they have to work in the office. During the pandemic, studies show that 
women took care of the children much more than men. Uh, if a family, uh, if uh, a couple was divorced, women were the ones taking care of the children and men not during the quarantines, during the isolation, the lockdowns. So all these problems were already there. And anxiety, depression that uh, have hit so many people during the pandemics were already there. The pandemic only created, like exposed the problem in a more dramatic way. Right. So we can safely say that we are living in very stressful times then, Doctor. Like, as compared to maybe our grandparents in the 60s or in the 70s or maybe like in the 50s. So we are, technically speaking, living in a, in a more stressful time then. It's difficult to give an answer to this because I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's difficult because sometimes I think about it and I often think, was, was the life in, in the generation of my grandparents who were born at the beginning of the 20th century better than mine from the mental health perspective. And uh, obviously like every generation in the human history tends to give an answer to this. Oh yes, yeah. the life of my grandparents were better than mine. And uh, uh, we are better technologically, but uh, their life was better, their, their values were better. It's not anymore as it was before, but in fact, if you think of it, that generation is the generation that made two world wars, two <laughs> incredible true. explosion true. of violence and destruction and hate. And then they made peace. So I don't right. know what to think about it. Like, were they less stressed? Probably, yes. They were in everyday life. I, I, I totally think they were less stressed. Uh, were they less compressed i don't think so i think that they had a lot of social norms as we have nowadays and this led to a lot of issues including the possibility of using war as a mean of solving conflicts uh, in europe nowadays we don't think of war like my generation would never think of war as a possibility for solving a conflict not on your own territory like if you want to bring war to some a third class country as some countries may still be seen by some people oh yes no problem but um but um not on their soul not on their soil i mean so i think there there have been a lot of changes and perhaps you should ask this question to some uh, more well-prepared historians <laughs> okay Ooh. But uh, one question that you mentioned right there, Dr. Gadi, there's one statement there that really hit me was that there's always this notion that uh, the times before ours were a simpler times and people were happier and like they're living a better life technically, but just simpler and happier in general. At the same time, you know, I grew up um, in, the, in a time where a lot of people, uh, especially the young ones in my generation, uh, are considered as soft or, or weak and a lot of people like especially like older people today consider us as being more prone or more sensitive towards mental health issues because we're just not mentally strong what are your thoughts on those statements doctor hmm. okay so um my statement that people always thought that it was better in the past is a fact. If you uh, go through historical documents, you may see that even in the ancient past, even the Greeks 
of some centuries before Christ or the Latins a uh, few centuries after Christ, they were writing the same. Uh, generation after generation, you will find that they were writing, it was better in the golden age of our um, grandfathers or grand-grandfathers, etc. So the past was always better. And so this is a, a common place of human beings. It's always better as it was in the past. However, yes, I think you touch a very big issue here. And this is something that uh, I can also feel. I've been uh, teaching in the university for uh, some time and I have uh, testing, uh, especially orally. In Italy, we have a lot of oral examination. So um, verbally, you know, um, a lot of students. And I could see year after year that their preparation was worse and worse but also that their capability of facing the stress of an oral, a verbal examination was decreasing. And yes, I could see from that uh, situation that uh, people were changing and the capability of interacting with another human being were changing. So what I think is that more than an emotional issue is a communication issue. I see. So people nowadays are too much protected by their media. Uh, nowadays, you can uh, seduce a girl through messages and then leave the same girl through messages. You don't even have to, to speak with her. Right. <laughs> for, right. for people of my generation, I'm 43 now, it's, it's quite ridiculous. Right. Like, I, 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 I know that, for example... That, yeah. Yeah, that, I know, like people tell me, I don't want you to call me, you know, I, or I don't want a boy to call me, you know, because otherwise I wouldn't know what to say, which is already a ridiculous thing. But at the same time, for a person like me, like the idea of sending a message to say anything more important than, uh, I don't know, prepare the food because I'm getting home, is ridiculous. Right. So I think people are, and this trend was already happening when I was young. Like when I was young, uh, 20 years ago, I was in the university. I read the research made in Japan. In Japan, all of this was already happening. And I understood already at that time, this would happen everywhere. At the time, the mobile phones were not spread, uh, spread you know, the, they were yeah. the first models, you know? Yeah, but then with the mobile phones, it was obvious that this would be the trend, you know? And what I couldn't imagine is that it would be so dramatic. I thought maybe in Japan it's cultural, you know, but no, it's everywhere nowadays. So I think if we don't learn, if we don't relearn to talk to people, to stay with people and to face their emotions and to feel and face our own emotions when we stay with people, then we're going to lose and to miss both things, to lose a capability and to miss an experience which are so precious for human beings. Right. And if if this goes on, Dr. Gary, because I don't see people leaving their phones in the next 10, 20 years, maybe even like the quite the opposite. Maybe they'll, they'll spend even more time with, with the phones, with especially what, what, you know, what technology can do. What's the worst thing you think could happen if this goes on? Sincerely, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I was thinking about it a few days ago and I thought you're right. People will leave their phone when their phone will be in their head. I think we're going towards a mechanic integration of microchips and human flesh. 
So I think the next technological step will be to integrate the fonts in our head so that we don't need to have one of our hands occupied by this ridiculous instrument. Now, it's ridiculous to see people around, me included, um, always with our fonts in our hands. So it will go in our head directly. And a lot of companies are already uh, making research on this. It's not such an easy uh, uh, task, but I think sooner or later, the big leap will be done. So I think that's the future. And uh, every one of us will be connected to everyone else in a much straightforward and easier way. So um, I, I don't know what will happen and I don't know what kind of society uh, will that be. Uh, some people describe that as post-human. I think that's the, definitely, we, we are going to create something completely different from the human being that in the long term, of course, that we, we, we see ourselves as we are now. So I, I can't answer that question because I, I really don't know what will happen. But at the same time, I can see that there is more and more attention for emotions. Never, never in history, there has been so much attention, at least in Western countries, for emotional alphabetization, for what people feel, and for taking care of other people's emotions as there is now. So on one side, we're probably um, losing the capability of communicating in a direct and uh, in a direct way and in presence with people. But at the same time, we are exploring uh, the, the world of the emotions. Right. Not even during romanticism, this was done in the way it is done now. I see. Could you elaborate on that, doctor? Because I, this is the first time I've ever heard of emotional alphabet, uh, alphabetization. Like, I, I'd like to understand more if, if you're willing to explain. Yes, sure. So, um, you know, emotions are something, well, they have always been there. They are part of human nature. Um, if you read even the classic of, ancient literature you will find they're speaking about emotions even though with very different words respect to now um aristotle for example was already making a treaty about happiness and right. what it means to be happy for human beings and within many other greeks so um greek philosophers i mean so this is something variation however there was never an attention and overspread attention to understanding the emotions to understanding what a person feels and how these emotions can inform his actions as there is now I see. during romanticism there has been a lot of poetry full of emotions full of love and big words like this mm -hmm. however uh, it was very much in one direction and it was an explosion of the emotion but nobody told people to do that at school Nobody in a school, even though at the end of uh, 19th century, beginning of 20th century, uh, the school started to become universal, right? All children had the chance, or many children had the chance to go to school at least for some years to learn to uh, read and write. But nobody would tell them about emotions. Nowadays, we do that. It's a common experience, at least in, West, in Western countries, to teach pupils to to understand their own emotion, to understand their reaction, to I understand, see. yeah, what happens when uh, when someone behaves in a certain way, how how we can uh, 
uh, respond to that. You know, so this is something that is happening more and more. And it's the first time in history. Do you, do you think that, you know, by teaching pupils, um, you know, about their feelings and their emotions, do you think that could help them build a more stable emotional stability in the future than doctor, if it, if it starts from a very young age? No, I'm quite sure about that. That is not sufficient. You don't learn emotional stability just by talking about emotions. I think you learn emotional stability through your experiences. I see. Through the experience that you make of bringing your emotion in the world, using them and seeing what happens. So for that, it is necessary that people keep meeting, keep communicating. Now, I don't want to be, I want to appear a, a creature of the last century. I perfectly know that this kind of meeting can happen also virtually. For example, a lot of video game players would tell you that uh, even though they have never met in person, the, the maybe the, their team, uh, the, the players in their team, they feel like they know each other very well because they, they, they communicate, they play a lot together, and you can see if a person is a good person or a bad person, an altruistic person, person or not etc a generous person or not but that's virtual you will never see the whole of the person okay so uh, virtually you can learn a lot but it will never substitute in my opinion the experience of meeting a person and sharing the everyday the experience of the everyday life with that person however definitely there must be some kind of interaction either virtually or in person with people to get the experience of what it means um, of what does emotion that you study on paper mean? I see. So in your opinion, that means that having a virtual relationship, in your opinion, can never replace uh, a physical relationship then? Definitely not. And as a psychologist, I've seen this happening a lot of times with love, love relationships. For example, many people, they develop long-lasting uh, virtual relationship with a partner. You know, I told you that many people feel lonely nowadays. Yes. And so they, they just invest in a relationship which is purely virtual. It was in the, chat, in the, in the prototypical chats many, day, many years ago, and then through emails. And then now it's easy to do it through your phone. You know, you can exchange videos, you can exchange audios. It's so easy, right? It seems like you are there. It seems like you know the other person, but you don't. You don't, and these people, after years, they discovered that the other person was a complete scam. It was, it was all a trick. It was all fake. The person uh, projected uh, an image of himself of how he wanted to be seen, or she wanted to be seen. And when the two people really meet or are about to to meet, something happens that destroys completely the image of the other person. So. I would say that while there are some contexts where it's, uh, it, it may be very nice to meet people online, for example, online gaming, as I said, it's, it's nice that you don't play a video game alone as I used to do, but you can play with a lot of people that you have never met all around the world. Yeah. That's nice. But uh, at the same time, I, I think certain things like uh, love relationship, uh, the virtual love relationship should never replace the, the, the in-person one.
I see. Yep, I, I, I completely agree with you on that one, Doctor, because I think personally for me, myself, I don't see virtual relationship at the same level as a physical relationship, but I know that this is starting to become a trend, especially in, in Eastern countries where um, a lot of quote-unquote virtual relationships have been starting to outpace real physical ones. So yeah, but I, I completely agree with your statement over there. Um, moving on to basically our, our second segment, Doctor, which is basically for young people who are basically out there looking for help or is interested in looking for mental help. I would say from my side or representing you know young people who are my listeners, a lot of them don't exactly know what to look for or who to look for when they need help, especially in, in regards to, to their mental health, because maybe my generation in the beginning, in the early 2000s, there, there wasn't a lot of education on that part. There wasn't a lot of, um, I would say, focus that has been given on that part. And it's really more up to us to kind of find out ourselves about what we should and we shouldn't do and who to look for. So although I know a lot of people like my friends are interested or basically do realize the need that they do require psychologists at times, but most of them do not do it for personal reasons or for reasons that I don't even know. But could you maybe help us understand more, for example, like what is the role uh, of a counselor or a psychologist? And often a lot of people are also misunderstood between the difference of a psychiatrist and a psychologist. So uh, maybe you could help us explain, Dr. Gatti. Yes, sure. Um, it's actually very, very easy. Um, so the confusion may come uh, from the language. In English, the word counselor is quite ambiguous because it's used with different meanings. So uh, let's say that in, in many native English speaking countries, a counselor is a person who studied five years and normally he's prepared to work as a supporter of processes, either in, in institutions, in organizations such as schools or hospitals, but he doesn't have full psychology competencies. Right. Generally speaking. Then there is a trick because sometimes they say mental health counselor. It's a linguistic trick not to say psychologist. Or because maybe in that particular country they use another denomination. So uh, perhaps you study three years psychology and two years counseling. So it's, it's, it's very tricky. However, a mental health counselor, for some people, is just a way to say, I'm a psychologist, but uh, I didn't, uh, I don't want to say it because psychologists are for the crazy people. There is this stigma. So I don't want to use the word psychologist. Right. For others, uh, a mental health counselor is a person who didn't study, who doesn't have a master in psychology. So it's a bit confusing. In my case, for example, I have BA and MA in psychology. Then I took another MA in another psychology branch. And then I took a specialization course in counseling that lasted three years and it's very experiential. So I, I would recommend to people to look for psychologists who have some kind of specialization, like they, they took a, a, a psychotherapy or a counseling school that lasts at least three or four years. Why? Because it's in that school that people learn how to be, how to uh, carry on a session. 
However, this also depends on the country because for example, in the United States, uh, in order to become a psychologist, you need to take a PhD. And one of the years of the PhD is for practice. I don't think one year is sufficient for practicing, for learning how to practice. So it's always better to, to find a professional who took a specialization course, but um, it's already better than nothing. However, to keep the things simple, psychologists and psychiatrists. A psychologist is a person who studied psychology and psychology is a very big area that really, it's like saying I studied literature, I studied mathematics. There is everything inside of there, Yeah. okay? The tasks of the psychologist are to make a diagnosis, okay? So he must be able to give a diagnosis and to give an initial support, which shouldn't be too long, you know, because that's the task of a therapist. Okay, so he makes support, he makes uh, habilitation or rehabilitation, uh, he, he makes uh, education, psychoeducation, but he shouldn't make therapy, okay? Because that's the task of the psychotherapist or uh, nothing, or the psychotherapist. Uh, psychiat psychiatrists sometimes are also psychotherapists, but that's another story. Now, so the psychology is a person who studies psychology and is uh, able to make diagnosis and is able to support people, uh, but shouldn't do therapy. This, at least in some countries. In other countries, the psychologist makes therapy. So it's very confusing on that. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, yeah, the psychologist is the person who makes therapy and he may choose or not to take a school of psychotherapy, but that's his own choice. Oh. So, uh, yeah, so, so uh, for example, in the United States, uh, after seven years, six, seven years studying psychology, you took your PhD, you took a, a MA, PhD, one year of uh, practice in psychology, you know, you spent six or seven years studying that, you can treat people, you can make therapy, you know, but normally also there, uh, psychotherapy schools are available. So uh, there is all this confusion around the concept of psychology. However, a psychology is a person, psychologist is a person who studies psychology and uh, who should have some capability of at least initiate a, a, a support path with you. The psychiatrist is a completely different person. The psychiatrist is a doctor. He's a medical doctor. He studied medicine. Now, a doctor after he studied medicine, he can specialize in many other things like um, liver, uh, I don't know, uh, bones. And this particular doctor, is specialized in a particular organ, which is the brain. Well, I'm simplifying a lot. It's not just the brain, it's the entire nervous system, but okay, it's the brain, okay? Right. Now the brain has its own chemistry. It has um, its own way of functioning. So the psychiatrist is that particular doctor that has studied in depth the brain and can prescribe medicines for the brain as an organ. So a psychologist cannot prescribe medicines, a doctor can prescribe medicines, and that doctor is the psychiatrist. Obviously, as the psychiatrist studied the brain, he also has a lot of knowledge on the diseases of the brains. Now, the diseases of the brains are very particular conditions, which we, call, we prefer to call disorders very, very often, yeah. and uh, that affect the behavior. If you break your bone, okay, you, it may affect your behavior, of course, but you remain always the same person. But if the chemistry of your brain changes, definitely that will affect your behavior. 
in dramatic ways, right? So uh, it's very easy to confuse the psychiatrist with a person with a psychologist because of that reason. But in fact, the psychiatrist is a person who treats normally very severe conditions, very severe conditions. Uh, we're talking, for example, about psychopathy or um, eating disorders, depression, etc. And often he does that by prescribing medicine and by talking with the person. But he doesn't talk as in depth as a, a psychologist or a therapist do. So normally in, in severe mental health issues, we work in team. Like I would never think of myself as working alone. I work together uh, with a doctor. I work together with a psychiatrist. And for certain mental conditions, you need to establish a whole network of professionals. For example, for eating disorders, you need a counselor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a, a dietologist, a, a doctor, you see? So you need an equip, and all of these people must be expert in that particular disorder. Ah, uh, all right, okay, okay, I see. So yeah, yeah. I would say that in that case, then for most people, if they have, I would say, issues with maybe not so severe issues, they would be, it would be advised for them to go to a psychologist rather than a psychiatrist. Would you say that then, Dr. Gatti? My suggestion is, if you are in doubt, so if you don't know what to do, always go to a psychologist and the psychologist will refer you to the best person because there are also other figures. There is the neurologist, for example. <laughs> so there are right. other figures, yeah. right? So go to a psychologist, he will give, he will make a diagnosis and then he will think, or, or, or maybe he's not able to make a diagnosis and he will refer you immediately, but he is the person who can refer you to the best professional. I see. I see. I understand. Then in that case, then Dr. Gadi, since everyone, you know, when it, when it comes to diseases or when it comes to anything that concerns themselves, they always try to find the best that they could. And with psychologists, you know, it's not very often for people, especially, you know, in, in, in the East to kind of go look for one. So in your mind, how can we differentiate between, let's say, a good psychologist and a bad psychologist? I wouldn't say bad, but I would say a good one and a not very good one. Okay, so... <laughs> Well, I think there are certainly aspects that differentiate the good and the bad ones. Uh, I, I am, for example, in some forums of psychologists or sometimes you see on LinkedIn, uh, psychologists posting things and you immediately see from what they write that they have no clue of what they are doing, what they are saying. Okay, so I think first thing that you should expect from a psychologist is that he has gone to a psychologist himself for years. Right. He took his own therapy, first thing. I always use he and not she. I know it's not so polite in English nowadays, but in, in, in Italian, Italian is a patronymic language. We used to think like yeah. he. So <laughs> sorry for the female listeners. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry about so, that. Doctor. The psychologist... Um, uh, has gone to a, during not just when he was a student but periodically he goes to visit a colleague and he talks with him we may call it supervision uh, supervision is when we have a difficult case and we confront it with another 
we, we go to talk with a more experienced colleague. Uh, I, I, I have always worked under supervision, for example. A difficult cases happen all the time. But uh, it also supervision also helps you to solve your personal issues because normally a difficult case happens not just because of lack of experience, but also because a certain patient touched something inside of you, some weakness in your personality that makes it difficult to work with that patient. So you have to work on it. So a good psychologist is a psychologist who had his own therapy at least once in his lifetime. That therapy was long, not, not just a couple of sessions and uh, solved many of his issues. And after that, he keeps routinely seeing a supervisor. Second, a good psychologist is a psychologist who keeps himself informed. Now I have to say that many psychologists did not made their homework when they were students and they keep not doing it when they are professionals. Now, if there is something that is appalling for me is how much I have to, how much time I have to devote every single day of my life to study. I study at least one hour per day, at least. Right. Now I have been doing this job for, for years now. Yeah. I started in 2013, but I keep studying because every day I have a new case, something completely new from what I've seen before. For example, uh, I just give an example. Uh, many psychologists nowadays will receive patients with anxiety, with depression. So you may study anxiety, you may study depression and that's fine. But then maybe one day, especially if you are uh, as a counseling psychologist, so you receive a, a vast array of different, different kinds of patients. Um, in my case, for example, I have received people with uh, bipolar disorder, uh, people with uh, uh, gender issues of many different kinds, people with sex issues, uh, people with disabilities. You have to study. There is no other way. You have to understand what it means what the literature already says about the people who are in those conditions so that you, you don't start from scratch. So you have to study a lot. And one, another, another thing that really makes a difference between a good and a bad psychologist is experience because it's like with medical doctors. Unfortunately, we can study a lot, but it's never like um, uh, seeing a patient. So you need to find a person who has some kind of experience. Now, I, I can see, for example, that I'm having a growth during the years. I don't work as I was working a few years ago, and I hope I will work better in a few years than I'm doing now. Right, of course. <laughs> Experience makes a lot of difference. And also, it may, it may accelerate the process. Like when I speak with my supervisors, I have several ones, uh, they are so fast. I'm still talking to them that they have already, they have already understood the entire issue, you know? Yeah. But there are people who have been doing this job of 30, 40, sometimes 50 years. So, you know, <laughs> you know, experience means a lot in this work. So uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to a young psychologist, but then there is an important thing. When you choose a psychologist, he can be young, he can be unexperienced, but then there must be a good feeling. So you may feel that you can, that the relationship with this person really is a relationship um, that you feel is supporting you. If you don't have that good feeling, go somewhere else. I see. And one more question, Dr. Gatti, is that a lot of my friends, when I talk to them and when before they go to a psychologist, in their mind, they always expect that a psychologist would give them solutions to whatever problems that they have. 
But do you think it's the psychologist's job to provide solution or is it a psychologist's job to let us understand ourselves better? Definitely, the psychologist's task is to help you understand yourself better. What I often say to my clients, my job is about being a mirror for you. Like you, you see yourself through me. And this mirror is like one of those deforming mirror. When you look at yourself in the mirror, uh, you, um, you see an image. I am a kind of mirror that deforms in positive ways uh, that mirror. So I help you to see yourself in a more balanced way because actually the way you see yourself maybe is only partial or is deformed. So this is the task of the psychologist. The, the good psychologist never ever gives advices, never tells you what you should do. I, I recall an episode when I was a, a very beginner, you know, and I, re, I remember receiving a couple yeah. and in these couples, uh, you know, they, they, they were having couple problems, you know, yeah. uh, they were not married, they were just uh, together. And the, the girl pushed the boy, pulled the boy into counseling. And the boy said, you know, she lamented that the boy uh, was gone to other counselors. And uh, she, he said, you know, I don't know if I should leave her or I should stay with her. I don't want her to suffer, you know. And the, the counselor said, well, if you feel like that, maybe you should leave her. And he left her. <laughs> and then okay. he regretted her he regretted his decision and then they came to me because she felt so painful for that that they came to me and you know i i was shocked i i i didn't make any comment about the operate of my colleagues but obviously it was something that that person should have never done you don't tell the patient what they should do they already know and this happens at a very sophisticated level um for example well, giving an example would be maybe too long now, but this happens at every level, from the most simplistic level to the higher level where it seems so easy to tell a person, oh, of course, it's not like that. You should think in this way. Never tell a person what they should do or what they should think. I see. All right. Because that, I think that's a very important piece of information, doctor, because I think even till today, a lot of people still have the notion that oh, going to a psychologist would tell me what to do. And I should do it because that's good for my mind and for my mental health. But I don't think they realize as much that a psychologist's job is more of like giving you a better reflection or a better view of yourself. And yeah, I hope with this, you know, with this episode, people can really understand more exactly what they can expect when they go to a psychologist. But uh, one last question before I move to the uh, question and answer from the audience, Dr. Gadi, is when do you know? that you should try to get help? Because I think this is one of the biggest questions that everyone have is whether I should deal with this myself or I've reached a point where I need help from someone else. So this is really an important point, Brandon. I receive clients that reach a point of being beyond limits. Like they are, it's very difficult for them to still stand and, um, have find the energy to solve their own issues this is because they come to the to see the the professional either the psychologist or the psychiatrist when it's too late when they are already desperate when they can't do anything else anymore so my suggestion 
rather than give a, a prescription on you should come at that point of your mental or disorder. No, my suggestion is go as soon as you can. When you think that something is not right, go speak with someone. Find a professional and speak with them. And if there is no problem, he will tell you. Right. But most of the times it's better to prevent the problem to become bigger rather than making a problem becoming, allowing a problem to become bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when you can't do anything else, when you don't have any other option, you go to a professional and say, please help me. Because at that point, yes, I can help you, but it's going to be longer, costly, and tough. Right. I understand. So in that sense, then, getting help as quickly as you can would be the best course of action whenever we have that feeling. Then. Yes, I think when there is an issue that we think we need some support of, uh, let's go to talk with someone. That's why I prefer to call myself a counseling psychologist. And that's why I say a counseling psychologist sees generally uh, healthier patients. Like normally I don't work, for example, with people with schizophrenia, for example. Um, why? Because I prefer to think of myself as a person who received patients um, who are at early stages of uh, their problems. In fact, in, in real day life, this doesn't happen. People arrive when they're desperate, when... Uh, that's why I have to work with a psychiatrist because very often they immediately need medicines. I have patients with uh, suicidal ideation. I have patients who cut themselves, you know, but yeah. it would be ideal if people, when they start having some issue, they immediately uh, ask for help so that we can support them better and we can uh, give the, the exact support that they need in the moment they need it. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Gatti. So I'm just going to move to our uh, question that one of our audience have. So the question, unfortunately, I, I would be only able to fit one, but I think this is a very good question, which is basically asking about the digital uh, mental health. Like, how do you evaluate a digital mental health? Because there is very little sources that I could un understand this. So I would like to know your opinion on how we can better evaluate our digital mental health. Yes. So there is a lot to say about this. I was working online uh, sporadically before the pandemic, but it became routine after the pandemic. And now a big portion of my clients are online and they are spread around the five continents. No, yeah. actually four, because Antarctica, I haven't covered it yet. But... <laughs> okay. <laughs> But uh, yeah, mm, online working is, let's, let's put it in this way, it's going to be the future. Like a lot of people will work online and they will keep working online even after the pandemic. So my judgment about online working is it's okay to work online, but of course there are, things, there are some limitations, okay? So for example, I, I will give you two examples. The first one is very easy to understand. You cannot work with body. Now, uh, in certain uh, psychotherapy schools like mine, for example, I, I, am, I was trained in uh, Gestalt and later on in mindfulness. So both Gestalt and mindfulness use a lot the body. I can use some techniques even online, but other techniques are more difficult to be implemented online. It would be better to have the, the patient in front of you. To be, it would be better if you could... Uh, um, make exercises being in the same room 
So of course you cannot work as much as you do in presence uh, with the body online. So this is one first limit. Now, is it absolutely necessary to work with the body? The answer is no. There are many schools of psychotherapy that do not work at all with the body. They don't touch the body. This is also a very cultural thing. So, and also I work with people from many different cultures. There are cultures with whom I would never dream of using their body because they, they don't want to use their body. So it's possible to um, circumnavigate this issue. The other issue is that um, when you work online, uh, especially on trauma, sometimes you need to be more tactful. Now, when you work on trauma, so for example, something, a, a very bad experience that some people leave, we're talking about really bad experiences, um, you, need, you always need to be tactful and to respect the time of the client. The problem is that if the client is close to you, you know, it's easier for him to contact it up, to contact you afterwards, or um, it's easier for him, it's for you, for, for the professional to see how much he can still take of those horrible memories. And how, when you should stop and tell him, okay, okay, perhaps it's sufficient, let's close, let's give it a closure. Online, it, it may be a little bit more difficult. So right. perhaps online, you need a bit more time to work on certain issues and you need to be a bit more tactful to work on while you work on certain issues. And then online, perhaps the other thing is that sometimes the work may be a bit slower, okay? So it may be a bit less effective and a bit slower, but that doesn't mean that it's not effective. It's, uh, I would say it's very effective, but perhaps working face-to-face, -face, uh, you can use frustration uh, in a more direct way. So, so I think online is a very valid way of working. Just you need to learn how to work online. The professional need to adapt to working online. I see. All right. Yes, I think I, I completely agree that I think a lot of people just needs adjustment. Don't you agree, Dr. Gary, that after adjustment, then maybe it it won't be as hard on people as, 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 it, it, as it is now in the earlier stages. Uh, what do you mean from the part of the clients? Uh, yes. Uh, what do you mean with adjustment? I mean, like uh, in a sense that some people are, are struggling to adjust from basically trying to like living an offline life and turning it into completely online. I think there would be a, a certain level of adjustments, don't you think? Oh, I see. Okay, so you remember what I said at the beginning that I, I always think that in-person interactions are more complete and more yeah. fulfilling. Yeah. That's because you, you can more easily take into account the nonverbal part of the interaction. Yes, of course. So obviously when we move everything online, there may be that feeling that something is missing. For example, in Italy, it's very common. Well, maybe not so common, but like, for example, I had a psychotherapist and we were, um, after some years, during my psychotherapy, after some years of my psychotherapy, we were, I would say, close. So, for example, in Italy, we, we, when we meet each other, uh, we tend to kiss each other. That's a very famous thing of Italians, yeah. no? And uh, with my psychotherapist, I was doing that. Like, there was no problem. Like, oh, thank you, thank you, and uh, thank you for this session. And we would kiss to greet each other right, on the cheek, of course, and um, that it's a ritualistic something, but it also has 
the meaning of feeling the presence of the other person. It's not just a voice. It's not just a face on the screen. Uh, it's a person that is in front of you and you can feel their body, you know? So um, this dimension, of course, gets lost. That doesn't mean that you should, that you should touch your patients if they don't want that, that, nothing like that. But of course, you know, even just being in the physical space of the studio of the professional uh, with the chair, the, the, the sofa and uh, that atmosphere may, may be very meaningful for some people rather than being at home in front of a phone or a computer. Mm. So going the physical act of moving to their space, you know, and having one hour only for you, it's symbolic. So of course, with, with the digital, with the digitalization of psychology services, this gets lost and it's a loss. It is a loss. But in some cases, it's the best thing we can do. Right. I, I completely understand this. And I agree. I agree as well. I mean, with the circumstances, I think this is what we can, we have to make do with, with uh, what we have right now. Yes. And so, yes, first of all, thank you very much, Dr. Gadi, for answering that uh, question from our listener. I hope that question fulfilled your uh, question as well, dear listener. So uh, one last thing, Dr. Gadi, is uh, a lot of our listeners are majority age-wise, they're very young, 18 to 25 people that are just starting out in life and not in the, in the best of times, if I have to say so. Uh, these are not exactly the best times for a young adult to go out and start their lives, but regardless, we still have to do it. Um, is there anything, any message you'd like to share to, to my audience as a closing statement? Hmm. Well, I was talking with one of my supervisor two days ago because I'm going to have an adolescent patient and I'm, you know, I don't have much experience with adolescents. Yeah. And I was asking, what, I, what should I do with the young people? How should I treat them, et cetera? And I think there are two things. We were talking about this, about adolescents. And there are two things that are at the same time uh, positive and scary in young people. So one, uh, one thing is that young people, especially those who have gone to school, they studied a bit. So they think they know, they know a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So my advice here, and it was the same for me when I was 15, 16, 18, 19. Uh, I thought just because I read some books that I knew a lot. In fact, it's not like that. So the first thing is be humble. And the best way is be humble by trying to find some intelligent, experienced people and learn from them. That doesn't mean do what they say. That doesn't mean that but learn from what they do. Learn something from people who are more experienced than you because you will realize growing up that you don't know anything, okay? So yeah. basically uh, use your energy and your uh, hunger for knowledge and experience by learning from other people who have already made mistakes. And the second thing is that the entire future is open to you. When you're young, you think that you don't have limits because the entire future is open to you. And even though now there is this idea that young people do not see the future, I don't really believe in that. There, there have always been difficult times. And yeah, it may be difficult to find a job more than 10 years ago, more than 20 years ago. But as I said, it always looks like it was, it was better in the past. So 
focus on the world you live in. That's the world you live in. It's useless to look at the past and feel the future, feel that, that energy, that hope that comes with youth because that is that feeling that you have the entire life in front of you, the feeling that you can do whatever you want, that you have the time to achieve things. Feel it. Don't listen to the deniers who say, nah, you don't have chances. The future is close to you. It's bullshit. It's nonsense. So feel the future. And here there is a Carter of the past that tells us how, how, great, how many great things a young person can do, for example, Alexander the Great, you know, there is this anecdotus that Aristotle told him, you know, Alexander, you're a bit too young to go in such a vast war. And he said, oh, I don't want to wait because otherwise I would lose the enthusiasm of youth. Right. So he went and he conquered the world. So, so um, go and conquer the world. Be, be like Alexander the Great. <laughs> don't, don't... Yeah, the world is yours. You don't need to be Alexander the Great. You can be a, a person that history will never take account of as long as you are satisfied and happy, but conquer your life. You know, that's something you can do. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Gadi. I think that's a very powerful word to end our episode. First of all, Dr. Gadi, I'd like to thank you again for coming onto the show and sharing all of these great knowledge with us. I think, you know, a lot of listeners would be very grateful, especially the part when you helped us explain how we can get help and, you know, how we can get good help and not bad help. So, yeah, first of all, I'd like to thank you for that. And a great honor to have you on a show that you co-inspired as well. So, yeah, very special episode for me today, Dr. Gatti. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brandon. And uh, congratulations for this work and uh, keep on. Thank you, Dr. Gatti. And also thank you guys for uh, dropping in, for tuning in and listening. And thank you for dropping your questions as well. I'm sorry if I cannot fit all of your questions, but yeah, I hope um, basically you've enjoyed this episode. As usual, if you have any comments or any email, you can just email us at bentopodcast2020 at gmail.com. You can follow us at our Instagram at bentopodcast.id. And of course, thank you very much, guys, for tuning in. I'm your host, Ben, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.